Hello, everyone. I am Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. I have the pleasure today to host the very first edition of a new podcast series at GC, the Global Month Ahead. Some of you um, might already be receiving our weekly look-aheads each Monday. Um, if you don't, but you would like to, please do get in touch with us. But we wanted to expand on that. So now, at the beginning of each month, I will get together with colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the month ahead. You can broadly expect a focus on issues with geopolitical or economic importance, and we will make sure that you know more than your friends and your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For our first edition, we will focus on three things. We will focus on the US political environment after the summer recess and in the run-up to the midterm elections. We will focus on the United Nations General Assembly, which kicks off a season of summits and multilateral meetings, and the snap elections in Italy on September the 25th. So, to begin, much like many of us, um, the US Congress has been on holiday or rather it has been on its August recess for the last month. But legislators are now coming back to DC, or are they? Um, some of them might already be going straight into campaign mode because the US is nearing its midterm season. Um, I have Robert here with me, who is a director at Global Council after he spent 13 years in various senior roles at the White House, the US Senate, and the US House of Representatives. And together, we will delve deeper into some of the big questions that politicians have on their minds as August recess has ended. There definitely seems to be a bit of political momentum for the Democrats, thanks to some very notable legislative victories, not least the Inflation Reduction Act. Robert, so politically speaking, what is the state of play in the US coming out of the August recess and how have the dynamics changed in the past few weeks and months? Thanks, Isabel. Well, it has been a very interesting and eventful uh, summer in the US. Uh, heading into this summer, things were looking very good politically for congressional Republicans. Uh, President Biden had some notable wins last year and earlier this year, but the headwinds politically he's uh, faced have been significant, notably uh, economic conditions like inflation, uh, gas and consumer prices, supply chain issues. Uh, we also saw his uh, signature Build Back Better initiative stalled at the end of last year. All of that uh, took a toll on his approval ratings and had a downstream effect on congressional Democrats as well. And so all of that was good news, politically speaking, for uh, Republicans. Uh, but over the summer, we've seen several dynamics uh, shift in Democrats' favor. They finally notched some long-sought uh, legislative wins. Uh, they passed the CHIPS Plus Act, which was uh, a bill that provides significant support for the semiconductor industry in the United States. They passed it uh, an incremental but important uh, gun control bill. Uh, and as you alluded to in your introduction, most recently, they passed uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really their signature bill, this Congress. It deals with things like climate change, health care, tax reform. These are all major Democratic priorities that should give their candidates some tangible items uh, to campaign on heading into the midterms. And then there was the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade, which we are seeing is clearly having an impact in motiv motivating the Democratic base. We saw evidence of this recently in Kansas, uh, which is a reliably conservative state where voters came out and clearly voted against removing uh, abortion rights from the Kansas state constitution. And finally, the economy is also showing at least some positive signs. Inflation is still high, of course, but gas prices are coming down somewhat and the unemployment rate is still quite low. So broadly speaking, 
there have been some positive trends uh, politically for Democrats over the summer. Uh, and we'll have to see whether that continues as we head into the midterms and the fight for control of Congress. I think at this point, uh, a little over two months out from Election Day, Republicans are still favored to win the House, uh, but maybe not favored to win the Senate anymore the way they were earlier this year. That's really interesting, Robert. Thanks very much for this. Um, Before we kind of look straight at the midterm elections, I think we should briefly stay in September because it does sound like there's really been a big positive shift towards the Democrats. Do we think they will try to further exploit that in September? Is there much on the um, legislative um, agenda this month? Well, as as far as the legislative agenda goes in September, I think legislating is mostly done until after the midterms. As I mentioned uh, before, I think Democrats will feel like they have uh, plenty of uh, recent legislative victories to talk about on the campaign trail this fall. I think they've accomplished a lot of the major items on their uh, to-do list for the year. The big item in September will be government funding. Uh, Government funding runs out at the end of the month. uh, And if additional funding is not enacted by then, there would be a government shutdown. Now, Democrats certainly won't want a government shutdown. And there have been no signs really that Republicans are interested in a government shutdown either. That said, I haven't seen many signs that they are on track to enact a full year funding deal by the end of the month. Um, So I think what we should expect is to see something called a continuing resolution, also known as a CR, that that would be enacted at the end of the month to fund the government uh, until after the midterm elections, probably into December. Uh, That would essentially keep the government open at the current rate of funding uh, and will allow Congress more time uh, to reach a broader uh, year-long funding deal. Uh, Beyond government funding, I think we'll see some action possibly on President Biden's judicial nominations. Since Senate control is up in the air uh, in November, and that's the body that considers uh, these judicial nominations, I think Democrats will really want to get as much of those judges confirmed as possible. But after the end of the month and after the funding deadline, uh, the House is in recess until after the midterms. The Senate is only in recess for, I think, two weeks in October. Uh, So that's pretty much it in terms of legislative activity. So that definitely sounds like they have to make this month count. And it's important not to forget that even the Inflation Reduction Act only passed by the skin of its teeth um, with Kamala Harris having to cast the deciding vote. And of course, as you allude to, that might no longer be possible come the midterms. So despite all the momentum we have discussed behind the Democrats, the midterm elections um, are rarely kind to the party in power. So as we do look ahead to Election Day in November, um, which party is currently favored to win control of the House and the Senate in the midterms? Well, let's let's take the House of Representatives first. I talked earlier about how the dynamics dynamics have shifted and there have been developments in the Democrats' favor over the past few months. But I think uh, despite all of that, Republicans at this point are still favorites to take control of the House. Uh, and this would be consistent with the polling we've seen and it would also be consistent with the pattern we've seen in the United States in recent years, where first-term presidents lose House seats in their first midterm uh, elections. During Trump's first term, for example, in 2018, House Republicans lost 40 seats. Uh, Democrats lost 63 seats in 2010 during Obama's first term. Uh, And beyond that, House election outcomes tend to reflect the national mood and the overarching economic conditions with inflation, consumer prices, recession fears are all still... uh, Uh, in Republicans' favor. 
the Senate, on the other hand, which is currently evenly split 50 50, uh, is much more of a toss up. There are a few uh, swing states, a handful of swing states that are really going to determine control of the Senate. Uh, in the election. Uh, these are states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Georgia, Arizona, and a few others. Um, and in recent weeks, the polling appears to have shifted slightly in Democrats' favor due to all the dynamics we discussed earlier, but also due to some issues with the individual candidates. Some of the Republican candidates in these swing states are relatively inexperienced. Some are first-time candidates, uh, and they're facing in some cases, better funded and more experienced uh, Democratic candidates. Some of these are Trump favored candidates who are better positioned to do well in a Republican primary than in a statewide uh, general election with Democratic voters. Uh, even Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate minority leader, uh, recently said that the House is, mu is more likely to flip to Republicans than the Senate. Uh, so he is even out there tempering uh, Republican expectations in the Senate. So I think the bottom line is that Republicans are still favored uh, in the House. Uh, the Senate is much more of a toss up and Democrats may be slightly favored at this point with just over two months to go until the election. Very interesting. Yeah. If you already have kind of um, key Republican figures managing expectations, there might be something to the polls. But we have, of course, also learned in the past that it's difficult to trust polls um, in the run-up to these he heavily contested elections. But if we do um, have a divided government in the US next year, if that does turn out to, to happen, what should we expect from Congress and what issues should we really pay close attention to? Yeah, well, with divided government uh, and some very conservative incoming House members likely, uh, I think it will largely be a legislative stalemate uh, during the next Congress. So I wouldn't expect much in terms of major legislation along the lines of what we've seen this year and last year. Uh, I do think you'll see a lot of House Republican uh, investigations of the Biden administration on a whole host of topics designed to appeal to the Republican base, whether it's uh, the border and immigration or the withdrawal from Afghanistan. COVID-related items or other investigations really designed to damage President Biden heading into the 2024 uh, presidential election. In terms of legislation, government funding will be a big issue, as it always is, particularly in a divided uh, Congress. We could see uh, shutdown politics come back to the forefront. And then one item uh, that uh, folks paying attention to this podcast should really watch out for is the debt limit. Uh, the debt limit will be a huge issue, uh, likely at some point next year. Uh, in the United States, the debt limit has to be raised legislatively. If it's breached, it can lead to significant market turmoil and even a downgrade of the U.S. credit rating. Uh, right now, the debt limit is projected to be hit at some point around the middle of next year, maybe in the fall. Uh, it's a little hard to tell. Um, and raising the debt limit will take bipartisan cooperation, and it's an issue where we've seen a significant amount of brinksmanship in recent years. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on uh, as it can really affect the economy and the markets. And then there will be some legislation that moves, and I'm talking about uh, particularly about bipartisan bills that either are expiring or that need to be reauthorized. Uh, one example is the farm bill. Uh, it is due to be uh, reauthorized next year. And then things like the National Defense Authorization Act, which is enacted on a bipartisan basis uh, every year. Well, thanks very much for this 
this, Robert, um, it's definitely going to stay interesting and you can expect um, more GC events in the run-up to the election, um, especially focused on these issues. September tends to be the month that kicks off a period of major international events and summits. United Nations Week and United Nations General Assembly are some of the early highlights there. And given that we aren't exactly short on crises, um, the General Assembly will offer some key opportunities for governments to establish or to reinforce their positions on anything from Russia versus Ukraine um, to the tensions over Taiwan. And as interesting as the official sessions will be, it is also often what happens in the corridors that is um, of as much, if not more, relevance. I have John Garvey and Daddy Donato with me. John leads Global Council's international policy practice and is focused on advising clients on how to engage with international institutions. And Daddy comes to us remotely from our Singapore office, where he is an associate focused on Southeast Asia. John, let's start with you. So I've already given the game away a little bit by mentioning the UN, but can you run us through the major international events and summits that take place over the rest of this year? What would be some of the main themes and flashpoints that you would pick out for our listeners? Hi, Isabel. Um, Well, as you said, it's going to be a very packed season ahead. So the first, uh, the first big meeting that people should watch out for is the UN General Assembly, which, as you said, starts uh, in mid-September and will run for a couple of weeks. The Leaders' Week uh, starts on the 20th. After that, we, in mid-October, we'll have the IMF and World Bank annual meetings. Then we've got the ASEAN Summit in November, followed by G20 Leaders' Summit, COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, and finally, a uh, slightly lesser known beast, but the EU-US Trade and Technology Council, which I expect to be very important in uh, December 2022. As you said, often with these meetings, it's not what's on the official agenda, but it's what, what are the main currents running through them. And I think there are going to be three key debates that will run through all of these. So the first is, um, unsurprisingly, Ukraine. And I think the big question that we should be looking out for is whether G7 and EU unity and support for Ukraine hold firm. And that's really a question of whether they can hold firm in the face of rising cost of living pressures, inflation, particularly in Europe, as we look to be facing a very bleak winter, particularly if there is, um, as quite a lot of analysts expect now, a full shutdown of Russian gas flows to Europe. Um, I think one of the things people should be looking out for is whether more material, uh, more material support for Ukraine and more material uh, punitive action for Russia is possible um, during this period, because a lot of the low-hanging fruit has already been picked. Um, and I think just in terms of the unity question there, one figure uh, that's come to the fore in recent weeks, which is worth pointing out, is that the US's combined military and financial aid to Ukraine is now over three times the EU contribution. Uh, if you think back to what Robert's just been saying about midterms, domestic political pressures in the US, that's that's something which we should all wonder whether it can hold for the long term. The second 
The second big theme I think we'll be seeing across uh, across these meetings, but particularly up to uh, COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, is whether these same economic pressures will undermine commitments to the net zero transition. We've already seen a bit of this at domestic level. In Germany, uh, we've seen a revival of coal plants. In the UK, in the context of the leadership election, we've seen some pressures to drop or uh, certainly slow the pace of some climate commitments. But the big question, I think, in um, COP27 from a global perspective is whether uh, the commitments that were made at COP26 regarding climate finance for developing countries actually come through. This will be a summit about implementation, but it runs a real risk of being a damp squib. And then finally, the third theme that I think we should look for right across these summits is whether we really see increasing evidence of a fundamental split between uh, what President Biden has called an alliance of democracies and uh, autocratic axis, if you like, um, in which China and Russia are coming increasingly close together. I think in, in some ways, that situation is already manifest. The really, really interesting part of it is how do countries who are sort of trapped in the middle react? And I'm thinking particularly here of India and Indonesia. Indonesia, obviously, the presidency of this G20. India will be the presidency of the next. I think it's also worth, um, we'll come on to Anga in more detail, but it, it's worth remembering when you do consider the UN General Assembly, the two thirds of the world's population live in countries which either abstained or voted against the censure of Russia for the invasion of Ukraine earlier this year. Um, thank you, John, very much for picking out these three broad trends. I think all of them will be very, very interesting for our clients and any of our listeners watching to see how these unfold. I will come to Deddy in a moment to talk about India and Indonesia in a little bit more detail. But also, this is going to be one of the first instances for leaders to get together since um, COVID-19 in person. Do you expect any um, actual get-togethers between, um, say, Russian and US counterparts? Do, do you think any of that is uh, is on the cards? Well, the UN General Assembly is always is always uh, more uh, more an event or forum for political theatre than it is for sort of cold hard diplomacy. You do um, sometimes uh, get important important meetings behind the scenes or in the fringes. Um, one recent example that I can think of is in uh, 2013 in the margins of Unger, President Obama and President Rouhani of Iran held, I think, the first direct call between the two countries for a long time that helped unlock the nuclear deal. Unfortunately, I don't think we are in an era of breakthroughs right now. I would expect quite a lot of grandstanding from, um, from Putin, from President Xi, from uh, from Biden as well. I don't think there will be much of a meeting of minds. I, I imagine you're right. And that will be um, not what the president of Indonesia wants to hear. I imagine who's really eager to have a successful G20 summit lead later in the year where he hopes to bring these people together in the same room. But to briefly stay on um, Russia versus Ukraine. So I would say the UN has generally been perceived as quite weak on Ukraine and has drawn a lot of criticism. 
I suppose there's a um, a bit of a reputation for Ungar to be um, more theatre than than action, and um, we've had those early Ungar resolutions condemning Russia's invasion. But otherwise, there has not been much more significant happening at the UN with regard to the war. So, should we expect anything significant this year, um, either on the war or maybe on broader UN reform? Well, firstly, I would say it's it's hard not to um, feel sorry for the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres because he is doing um, a difficult job in the most difficult of circumstances. He is probably um, the most marginalized, I would say, Secretary General of the UN in recent times, but he's also been the most outspoken about um, about the marginalization of the UN and and the, the way in which the international system has been undermined. The one... Um, the one avenue through which we have seen the UN act to sort of support an end to the conflict in Russia-Ukraine is through the deal that was primarily brokered by Turkey to allow grain exports out. Now, whether or not that will hold is um, is a different question. And it's, it's notable that the UN doesn't have a significant role in sort of verifying the agreement. It's more, more of just a supporting measure. Now, what Guterres has said is that um, reform of the UN and the wider international system is vital. He set out um, he set out a framework agenda in advance of UNGA last year called um, a Common Future. That's actually scheduled to um, scheduled to be discussed properly at UNGA next year, and he has foreshadowed. Um, he well, he has promised that part of those proposals will be a global deal on how to reform the whole of the international architecture, not just the IMF, but the World Bank, um, sorry, not just the UN, but the IMF and the World Bank as well. But at the heart of all of this lies um, reform of the UN Security Council, and particularly reform of the P5, the permanent members. And at the moment, it is hard to see any of those P5, but particularly Russia, having any truck with uh, discussions about giving up the veto, and that will always remain the key to unlock it. So when you hear, as you will, countries like India um, speak at UNGA about the frustration with the UN system um, and the possibility that we, we really are coming to the end of the track in terms of its usefulness, you have to wonder whether whether Guterres really has has another year to publish proposals on how to save the system. Thank you very much, John. And that leads me very neatly over to Deddy. So as um, presidents like um, Jokowi and Prime Minister Modi are heading to Unga as well, could you lay out for us how these two countries, especially with the current G20 presidency and the next G20 presidency, will be going into this United Nations General Assembly? What sort of positions will they be laying out for us? Right. Uh, thanks, Isabel. So uh, I think uh, Indonesia's uh, leaders uh, will likely urge uh, UN members to uh, address the ongoing global inflation because uh, it has actually started to impact uh, Indonesia's economy. Uh, the Jokowi administration has uh, actually, uh, I mean, recently recognized that they have limited fiscal capacity to retain uh, subsidy policies to temper increasing energy prices. And it will likely become worse uh, next year because the windfall revenue this year from commodities exports such as coal uh, will likely uh, taper off. And Jokowi, I think, uh, will likely uh, make this as the same priority uh, among others 
uh, as the host of the G20 summit later in November. Uh, so here, uh, domestic politics is the key to understand uh, Indonesia's uh, strategic calculus. And on the other hand, uh, India's foreign minister is uh, expected to attend the General Assembly as well and will likely refrain from uh, giving a statement about uh, its view on Russia's invasion of Ukraine that can be interpreted as either pro-US or pro-Russia. Uh, India, in this case, uh, has been benefiting from cheaper oil from Russia, but it is also being transparent in explaining to the West that the decision to buy oil from Russia is the best deal for its people. So uh, we can see that uh, domestic politics is also an important factor to see how India positions uh, itself in the international arena. So for India, uh, maintaining the balance between Russia and the US uh, is actually the way forward. I'm picking up on that um, topic of balancing acts that India has, I would say, been carrying out quite successfully. I would be interested in quickly touching on one other conflict which we haven't touched upon yet, which is kind of increased US-China tensions in light of the recent visit um, to Taiwan by Nancy Pelosi. Deddy, could you give us a quick sense of what the view is in the region? Uh, for, for Southeast Asian countries, um, they remain neutral in seeing the Taiwan crisis because uh, for them, any escalation in Taiwan will be detrimental to the regional stability. And countries like Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia have been very firm uh, in supporting one China policy. So what they want to see is more about the status quo rather than an escalated tension. Of course, there have been speculations about uh, China's uh, potential invasion of Taiwan and there will be uh, a response from the U.S., including economic sanctions, which might be uh, very uh, dangerous for Southeast Asian countries because in the case of U.S. putting sanctions on China and its allies, um, Southeast Asian countries will be in dilemma to actually uh, choose sides in this case. Let's move um, to Europe, where there's also um, quite a lot of development, quite a lot of moving parts. So in July this year, the Italian government, which was led by Mario Draghi at the time, essentially imploded and Draghi stepped down as prime minister. This is why we now have snap elections scheduled for September 25th in Italy, about eight months ahead of schedule. So we will be looking at why um, the Draghi government fell and we will be looking forward to who we might see as the top contenders in this election before we're zooming out slightly from the politics and looking at the economic impact, both for Italy, as well as the wider implications for the Eurozone and the EU more widely. On this topic, I have Denzel Davidson with me and Julia Pasquale. Denzel is a director at GC and he was previously a special advisor on Europe, both to Prime Minister Theresa May and a special advisor on EU issues to two foreign secretaries. And Julia is an associate in our trade team and is also from Italy. So she has been following this topic very closely. Um, Denzel, I'll start with you. So the last few elections in the largest EU economies have seen um, Angela Merkel depart from the scene after 16 years and Emmanuel Macron in a weakened position. But at least those elections happened when we expected them to. Um, in Italy now, we have elections that weren't due until June 2023, taking place this month. So kick us off. How come these snap elections are happening and what should we be looking out for? Well, uh, thank you, Isabel. They're happening because of usual politics, because of jockeying for power. Uh, the responsibilities of government aren't always politically helpful. 
And with less than a year to go before the, the deadline for the next elections, all the Italian political parties were looking out for their political interests. Uh, and the Five Star Movement, which has had a very rough time in government, uh, was looking to shore up its support and uh, was falling out of line with the government, not voting for what the government needed. And, uh, and Draghi saw this as the beginning of a series of ultimata uh, from political parties to show off their policy uh, determination to their voters, which would make the government uh, dysfunctional. At the same time, the right-wing parties thought that they were leading in the polls and that if there were elections soon, they would get a majority. So the combination of those two, th two things, led to uh, some political opportunism and uh, the government's collapse and Draghi's resignation. Draghi resigned first because government, uh, by uh, in, in particular parties' ultimata, was not, in his view, possible. And second, because he was acutely conscious that he was a technocratic prime minister without a proper democratic mandate of his own, without the broadest base of support in the Italian parliament, he would lack the legitimacy to govern Italy. And so that's why he resigned and why we are now having elections in September. Now, of course, we're going to look out for the two classic things you look out for in every general election campaign, the two Ps, policies and polling. Uh, and on both of those, uh, Julia is going to speak now. Yeah, thanks very much, Denzel. You've already introduced us to some of the key players here in what is a very fragmented political landscape. So, Julia, I'd like to understand a bit more about who do we expect to come out on top here? I've heard a lot about voters being eager to possibly punish the parties responsible for the Draghi government. But on the other hand, it also seems like the centre-left wasn't able to form a very cohesive joint platform, which seems to have given the upper hand to a more right-wing blog and um, possibly led by the Brothers of Italy party. So what is your assessment of this, Julia? Do you think the polls are right? And if so, what kind of policy platforms are our top contenders running on? Thanks, Isabel. Um, yes, so as you as you mentioned, uh, current polls show that the most likely outcome of the election will be a rightwards coalition led by Fratelli d'Italia, which is Giorgia Meloni's party, um, Lega, which is Salvini's party, um, that some of you may know because it was in government uh, in 2018, and Forza Italia, which is uh, former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi's uh, party. Together, these three uh, right-wing parties um, accrue about 40% of votes, um, Fratelli d'Italia is polling at around 24, 24%, and has comfortably sat above 20% since June 2021. So it's expected to lead um, in in uh, in the elections and uh, to sort of be the biggest party forming the government. Um, Lega is um, polling at about 14%, and then Forza Italia at about 7%. Uh, so they we will be both critical to um, a coalition with Fratelli d'Italia. Um, and we expect this right-wing government um, or right-wing coalition uh, to be quite different from previous um, right-wing uh, right governments. Uh, for example, again, uh, quite different from the one that Berlusconi led until 2011. Um, this one will be uh, likely leaning much further to the right with an outwardly nationalist anti-immigration Eurosceptic rhetoric. That said, if we look at the policies laid out by the coalition in their um, political program, these revealed to be actually quite centrist, focusing on lowering taxes, providing incentives for domestic industry and pushing for renewable energy and the circular economy. Um, so 
I think although this would indicate a less radical government than many would expect, um, this is mainly, uh, in my opinion, intended to avoid alienating moderate voters in the centre-right ahead of the elections, but it is likely that the coalition's priorities will be refined and will shift after new government is formed, especially once parties have a clearer picture of who will be leading uh, in the leading position. And we also expect the coalition to continue taking a hard line on immigration and look to redesign the system to largely reduce immigrants uh, coming into the country and this might might lead to some sort of disagreement with the EU. And I know Denzel also has some thoughts about um, the future relationship between a new Italian government and the EU. But in your response, I'd also be curious to hear about what you're thinking about a new government's potential economic policies, because under Draghi, of course, we've had a former European Central Bank president at the helm of Italy who worked very well with the European institutions, including on economic reform. So that would be quite interesting as well. Do we expect a new government to continue with um, kind of the Draghi reform agenda? And what might that possibly mean for the um, EU funds? Italy is really very much looking forward to. Do we expect them to stick to this agreed reform agenda? Yes, sure. Um, from a macroeconomic perspective, uh, it is true that the advent of a right-wing government could pose risks to the Eurozone. And the choice of the next prime minister would be critical to avoid jeopardizing the political capital uh, and trust built by Draghi, uh, as you as you mentioned. Uh, and this is very much true in terms of both reforms uh, that Italy uh, has pledged to implement, as well as fiscal policy flexibility. So let me clarify what I mean by this, uh, as I'm aware that some of you in the, in the audience might not have been following. Italian politics as closely. So on one hand, um, Italy had agreed an ambitious set of reforms under Draghi, which were tied to economic support from the EU under the Recovery Fund. The access to this money has already been jeopardized by the fact that snap elections have slowed down the implementation of the plan reforms. Um, indeed, political parties are at the moment focused on campaigning very much um, rather than implementation uh, of previous reforms um, and could be could be further threatened by a right-wing government. Uh, at this stage, it is rather unclear to what extent the new government will break from the previous one on this. Um, so to some extent, the coalition has pledged to implement the reforms started by Draghi, but has also hinted to a possible revision of the EU recovery fund plan to refocus on the changed conditions brought by the war in Ukraine uh, and rising energy prices, as well as to ensure that the south of Italy and lower income areas benefit from these funds. Um, they've also, for example, pledged so um, to, to implement a flat tax for both businesses and individuals. So this is quite a bold um, divergence from uh, Draghi's government. Um, so and so this is very much, uh, again, a, a rather of a rather question mark, but um, it is it is true in a sense that um, they might they will definitely in a way diverge on some in some areas as i mentioned immigration will be will be a key one um but they might they might um align to to the previous government to be able to access these funds which they recognize are quite vital at the moment uh and then on the other end um even in in the event that the right wing coalition does follow Draghi's steps on reforms a more conf confrontational and eurosceptic government could nevertheless make other member states quite reticent or more reticent to take further steps towards fiscal burden sharing across the EU and could also increase scrutiny on Italy's public finances. So it, I think it goes very much both ways. So it's not not just what Italy or the next Italian government will do or will be able to do, but is, is also what the EU and how the EU 
um, sees Italy um, and how credible uh, the EU member states um, see this government or the next government to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we've already had the EU's economic commissioner, um, Paolo Gentiloni, who himself is a former Italian prime minister, essentially say, look, Italy can't expect to renegotiate the fundamentals of the COVID recovery package. So that would be a very interesting question. And that takes me very neatly, Denzel, back to you. And we've had Giorgia Meloni um, described as an admirer of Viktor Orban and there's been a lot of questions about how genuine this dialing down of Euroscepticism has been. And what are we expecting? How would this new government possibly engage externally, including with the EU? Yes, well, uh, this is quite a big event uh, because Draghi has been a very heavyweight figure on the European and international scene. And all this does matter because Italy is the EU's third biggest country and it's a G7 member. So this is not without consequence. Uh, the, the Draghi's absence itself, presuming that happens, which it very likely will, uh, will have an effect. Macron is going to lose his closest ally in Europe. And Draghi was a leader at the European Council table. And internationally, people looked at him uh, at his vast experience and his great track record as a figure to uh, whose advice they saw uh, and who could um, uh, drive policy forward. And it shouldn't be the importance of his role in formulating Europe's policy towards Russia and Ukraine shouldn't be under, underestimated. He wasn't necessarily the noisiest leader, but he uh, quietly pushed for a very firm position, a very tough position on Russia. And without him, that will make a difference. Now, uh, as we've heard, we've got a right-wing coalition from Forza Italia, who are with uh, the peculiarities, perhaps, of Berlusconi's leadership, nonetheless, a traditional centre-right party, and then two uh, hard-right parties, some would um, go further than that in Lega and the Fratelli d'Italia, the brothers. Lega and Forza Italia have been traditionally been close to, to Putin. Uh, Berlusconi and Putin probably described as personal friends. They exchanged gifts. Lega have been very close to the Kremlin indeed. And the Fratelli d'Italia, who have in some ways the furthest right pedigree of all these parties, have sought to mark themselves as different, as reassuring, as not people to be frightened of by uh, taking very firmly the Ukrainian side, the, the classic as well, Western side uh, in this conflict. Um, but obviously, everything's going to come under strain this autumn uh, with the intensification of the energy crisis. And so what a lot of Western foreign ministries, defence ministries, chancellors are worried about is whether this Italian government really will hold firm as part of the Alliance of Liberal Democracies uh, through the tough, very tough economic year ahead. And then there's one final point I want to mention, which people are also uh, interested in looking at, is that, as Julia has said, uh, these parties, two of these parties, are certainly traditionally very Eurosceptic. They put forward a joint programme, which is full of classic EU motherhood and apple pie. But the question is whether they really mean it. Uh, you know, there's no reason to think that their instincts have changed, but they have thought very carefully about what will appeal to Italian voters. So I think for as long as this government lasts, assuming that the polls stay as they are and the right-wing coalition do uh, take power um, uh, this autumn, is that you know, political, deeper political integration in the EU wasn't really going anywhere anyway. Uh, now, it's absolutely not going to go anywhere, because why would these guys uh, be up for it? Uh, but there's a broader issue, which, as Julia has said, which is um, 
the the feelings of trust in Italy, where there are further, much further fiscal solidarity as possible. If Northern European countries who did trust Draghi don't trust this government, and then there is the unknown. Will uh, people like Meloni uh, feel that they are confident enough in their position to do try out their own more exotic background of politics? And will this normalise uh, the um, uh, policies that are now, or attitudes that are now confined to the fringe? And we will have to suck and see to see whether that's going to be true. Well, on this note, I think we are at the end of our very first episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. So we're very clearly looking at a busy September, with both events taking place in the US, expected to give us a better sense of what to expect later in the year, both at the midterm elections and at the G20 summit in Bali. And in Italy, we're very likely to see a new government which will be less comfortable working with the EU. And it will be very interesting to see what this will mean for European coherence and unity, especially on issues such as Russia, as we head in a ver into a very difficult winter. So if you enjoyed this and want to hear more like it, the good news is that we will be back at the beginning of each month to give you a look ahead. And as always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we have discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can find the contact details for our different presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So thank you very much, Robert, John, Daddy, Julia and Denzel. And thanks to you all for listening.